Good evening. Um, it's really good to be with you all this evening. Um, I uh, um, start. I so I was a Simpsons kid. I don't know if this is true for any of y'all. Maybe your parents didn't let you watch Simpsons. But one of my favorite scenes in any Simpsons ever was the scene where Homer. I think he's visiting a city somewhere, and um, he is in a bucket in a bucket truck in the middle of a river, and he's the bucket truck is going down into the river and you can just see him drift lower and lower and lower and he cries out in desperation. Homer cries out in desperation. I'm not normally a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me Superman. And then it cuts to commercial. Um, so in December 2004, uh, many of you probably remember this, the, there's the great uh, tsunami in the, in, around the rim of the Indian Ocean um, Remember, this is the end of December in 2004, and 250,000 people died, a third of which were children. And in the, uh, the following weeks, in newspapers and in magazines, uh, there are lots of letters and articles asking this question, where is God? Um, where, is, where is God? One reporter wrote this. He said, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. And from our human perspective, the formula for the question goes something like this. Knowing the suffering of the world, God can either be all good or all powerful. But he can't be both. Because if he was, then he would not allow such tremendous suffering. And this question, how can God be good in the midst of the great suffering in the world in our own lives... This is a question that all of us wrestle with. I mean, maybe, maybe you're asking this question right now. How can God actually be good in the midst of my real suffering? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes how he originally rejected the idea of Christianity. He rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. Though later he came to realize that evil was actually more problematic for atheism than it was for Christianity. Now this question, how can God be good? Some of us ask this explicitly. Um, we say, how can God be good when this trauma or this tragedy, uh, we, this death of a loved one I've experienced, how can God be good in the midst of tragedy? Or how can God be good when I experience so much shame? Or how can God be good when I'm always stressed, I'm always overwhelmed with life? Or how can God be good in the midst of the seeming incoherence of the world around me? But many of us don't even know that we're asking this question. Um, about two years ago in February, my wife got a phone call one morning from her dad because that morning at 4 a.m., um, her dad and her mom had escaped from their burning house with just their clothes on their backs. And um, Mary Clark, I remember we prayed, and then Mary Clark left and went to her, her folks um, to see them in, in eastern North Carolina. And uh, she, went, she went just to, to sort through the ashes and to, to gather what she could, um, the salvageable pieces of her childhood. And like a smudge on a pair of glasses, this question, is God actually good, subtly began to cloud my vision. Now, I didn't explicitly ask this question. Um, I didn't even know that I was asking it. But it had crept in and I started to believe the lie that God wasn't good. So what do we do with this question? What do you do with this question, is God good? Where do you set your anchor on this? As the storms of life howl outside of your window, how do you know that he is good? How do you have real certainty that God is actually good? Um, well, friends, we are not the first ones to ask this question, and God has given us an answer to this in Psalm 132. 
So to give you some context for the psalm, uh, Psalm 132 is one of the songs of ascent. And the songs of ascent were the psalms that were sung by pilgrims as they headed to Jerusalem. So they would go three times a year to the annual feasts. And the songs of ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, were the songs that they sang as they made the journey to Jerusalem. This is a journey that would have been difficult and dangerous. And then they would probably begin to wonder, is God actually good? Um, is God really there in Jerusalem? Like, why are we making this trek? Can we, sh- can we be sure that God is actually there in Jerusalem? I've never experienced him there. It's a lot of work for so little reward. I mean, other guys, they get to worship their gods without leaving their homes. Why do I have to go to Jerusalem? Is the Lord even good? So how does God answer this question for his pilgrims? Um, well, if you look, if, you, if you've still got your Bible open, um, if not, you can just follow along by ear. But the, um, the psalm is divided into four stanzas of 10 lines each. So verse, verses 1 through 5, then verses 6 through 10, then verses 11 through 13, and then verses 14 through 18. And each stanza contains a name, which is the answer to our question. So do you see the name in there? It's, it's the name of David. And what God is doing is he is pointing his people to their king, to the anointed one, David, and saying that he is the answer to the question, is God good? All of the other songs of ascent are short. They're three to eight verses long, but Psalm 132 is twice as long as the second longest one. And I think this is because of its great importance. God takes our questions seriously because he loves us. So he actually takes the time to answer us. He doesn't give you fortune cookie answers. He doesn't tell you to look for the silver lining. He doesn't tell you these trite truisms, you know, God, everything will work out in the end, or God helps those who help themselves. He doesn't do that to us. Instead, he invites his people to call him to remember. This is what he says in verse one. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Now, this feels backwards to us. Now, why would we call God to remember? If God is actually God, isn't he all-knowing? Is it even possible for God to forget? But this isn't how you would speak to a far-off God. I mean, this is how you would speak to a friend, right? We do this all the time with each other. Mary Clark, my wife and I, um, we do this. Remember, we say, remember our first apartment? Or we look through pictures. Remember when our children were so small? I do it with my sisters. Remember when we went on that trip when we were young? I mean, this is something that we do in our families. This is something we do in our closest friendships. So why do we do this? Why do we ask? Why do we call each other remember? Well, there's something about remembering together, telling our story to one another that binds us to each other. Um, There's a a doctor named Kurt Thompson who has written a couple of books. And um, in one of his books, The Soul of Shame, he introduced me, and I think introduces to a lot of his readers, to the field of interpersonal neurobiology, which is the study of brains together. Um, And one of the things that these scientists have discovered is that when we remember together, our minds are actually reshaped together. And our memories connect our brains together. So the Lord invites us together to call him to remember that we might be drawn towards him in our shared memory as his people. That we might be reminded that he is in it with us. So we're going to look at these four stanzas together and see what it is that the Lord calls us to remember. So first, um, we're told to... Call God to remember David and his vow. This is the first stanza. Verses one through five give us words to call the Lord to remember David's hardships and his vow. So first is hardships. Now commentators put King David's hardships in two categories. 
The first were his assassination attempts. King Saul made 11 attempts on David's life because he saw David's faith and his anointing and he wanted power and authority for himself. But God's favor rested on David, so Saul hated him and tried to kill him. And First and Second Samuel chronicle this and they read like the Godfather, parts one and two. Um, I mean, 11 assassination attempts on his life. So his hardships were his assassination attempts. And second, his hardships were his work collecting the wealth to build the temple in Jerusalem. First Chronicles twenty two fourteen says this, with great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord. So what was this? This was 1,300 pounds of gold, 13,000 pounds of silver, and then bronze and iron before, beyond weight. So we're... David, remembering David's hardships, remembering his vow. And his vow was not to sleep. It says it four different ways here. To, his vow was to not sleep until the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? And this brings us to the next stanza, verses 6 through 10. And the Ark was a wooden box overlaid with pure gold. And inside of this box were the Ten Commandments that had been given to Moses. And the cover of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. And on the cover, there were these two winged cherubim, which, what is a cherubim? It was uh, these two lions with wings and human faces that sat on the top of, um, top, of, top of the ark with their wings outstretched towards the middle. Nobody was allowed to touch it. Um, there was actually these metal rings on either side of the ark where they had poles that were put through it for people to carry it. And at Mount Sinai, God told Moses that it was at the ark, at the mercy seat, the top, the cover of the ark, that that's where God would meet with Moses and speak with him. And the Ark of the Covenant was where God met with his people. When Israel was at rest in the wilderness, um, the ark was in the tabernacle, and that is where um, he met with Moses. And then when Israel was moving through the wilderness, um, the ark went first. And when Israel went into battle, the ark went first. The ark was the place, the ark was the physical location on earth where God forgave sin. God set up a sacrificial system so that sin could be dealt with, so that he could dwell with his people and not destroy them. And it was on the mercy seat of the ark that the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the people's sins. So we read in, in Psalm six, verses six through seven that it recounts David finding and returning the ark. The ark had been captured by Israel's enemies, the Philistines, and after they tried to return it, it ended up sitting in the fields of Jaar for 20 years. And when David became king, he went and he got it, and he returned it to Jerusalem with the greatest imaginable celebration. Second Samuel 6 talks about David, or shows this picture of David leading 30,000 men dancing and singing as they brought the ark to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And then again in verse 8, the psalm tells God what to do. What is going on here? Why? What's going on in verses 8 through 10? Um, well, eight, verses 8 through 10 is the prayer for the activation of the sacrificial system. And this is key. The sacrificial system was the center of the Jewish faith, the center of the tabernacle, the center of Jerusalem. Why is this? Because it's here that the fundamental reality of God's holiness was on display. One commentator said that the whole sacrificial system reinforces the central component in Jewish worship, which is this, that God is holy and you are not. So God was saying to his people, through the life that he organized for them, that to take me seriously, to take Yahweh seriously, means that you need to take your need for a stand-in, your need for a substitute seriously. 
And this is what the sacrificial system was. It was the provision of a substitute to remove the sin of God's people so that he could dwell with them. Now, this is foreign to us. Um, to some of you, this is even grotesque, the idea of an animal sacrifice to placate a deity. But consider this. If, this. if this is something that feels foreign or grotesque to you, perhaps the reason it's foreign is because your concept of, of God or relating to him is the way that you would relate to anyone else. Um, your conception of God is that he wants you to be good, and if you're good, then he'll make your life comfortable. He's more like a vending machine than any, anything else. But, but consider this with me. Consider that the Bible tells us of a God who is infinitely high in his holiness and tells us that we are infinitely low in our sinfulness and that if this is who God is and who we are, then this sacrificial system starts to make sense. And then in verse nine, we have this prayer, this remembrance of when David reinstituted the temple sacrifice system in Jerusalem. He says, Lord, go to your resting place, you and your ark, so that your people can have their sin forgiven and can dwell in your presence. Your priest will be clothed with righteousness and your people will be filled with joy. And do this for David's sake. Do not neglect the promise because David has done the work to make it happen and because the Lord has vowed to do it. And this Psalm draws our attention to King David and his suffering, his work securing the ark for God's people. It's as if God is asking this question, do you want to know how you can be certain that I am good? I have given you a king who has suffered for you that he might secure my presence among you. That's what he does in the, in the third stanza. Um, it's saying, look at the covenant that was made with David. Look at verses 11 through 13. God promises that David will forever have a son on the throne so that God can dwell with his people forever. And just as Psalm 132 points Israel to David, it points the church to the one who sits on David's throne, to Jesus Christ. And so when we question God's goodness, God invites us to say, remember Jesus, to remember his hardships, to remember that his ministry was marked by the religious leaders trying to figure out how to kill him. And then when they finally did, his suffering was greater than any man ever suffered, that he died the death that we deserve. And to remember his vow, that just as David promised he would not sleep until he returned the ark to Jerusalem, Jesus made a similar vow. His work as king was to go to Jerusalem, to die for sin, to be raised for sin, so that in him, people from every tongue and tribe and nation might have their sins forgiven, have their shame healed, and be ushered into God's presence forever. So how did Jesus do this? Well, in Romans 3, we're told that God put Jesus forth as a propitiation, which is this word in Greek um, that in the Greek Old Testament is translated is the same word for mercy seat this word halasteron, which is the mercy seat, saying that God put Jesus forward as the mercy seat. What Romans is saying is that Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. He is the place where God delights to forgive sins so that he might dwell with us forever. And not only is Jesus the Ark of the Covenant, he's the entire sacrificial system. The New Testament book of Hebrews explains to us that the sacrificial system was not was not designed to be the sum total of God's interactions with his people, but that rather in Jesus, God has finished and completed what was pictured and repeated in the Old Testament sacrifices. And we see Jesus fulfill the sacrificial system in at least two ways. I'm just going to mention two um, for tonight. The first is that the sacrificial system went on in perpetuity. So Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near because it was impossible for the blood of an animal to take away the sins of a human. One commentator says this. He says that the sacrificial system 
of the Old Testament is like a check. And the purpose of a check is to cover the debt of sin. And the form of the check was animal sacrifice, whose blood was to be given in the place of the sinners. The Lord in his grace received the check and considered the debt paid, graciously assuring forgiveness to the offerer. But he didn't cash the check. He didn't cash the check. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's not possible for the blood of an animal to ransom fully the blood of a human. And so to return to the analogy, if God had tried to cash the check, the check would have bounced. So why did God receive it as payment at the time? Because he knew that one day there would be money in the account to cover the debt. Namely, when Jesus gave his lifeblood as the perfect and final ransom for the lifeblood of sinners. And second thing I want to show is that the, the burnt offering in the sacrificial system was wholly offered. It was completely given over, completely consumed. The burnt offering, which was called the hala offering, this is where we get the word holocaust. Um, the point is that Jesus was completely consumed on the cross and he did so willingly to secu- secure us for God. It's like a story I heard about uh, a man or a group of men who were bird hunting in South Georgia and far away in the distance, um, they noticed a cloud of smoke come up and they soon could hear the sound of crackling. And as the wind picked up, they realized this terrible truth that there was a brush fire coming their way. It was moving so fast that they knew they couldn't outrun it. So one of the hunters takes his, his backpack and he turns it upside down, upside down and shakes it out. And he begins to rifle through his pockets and he, he ends up finding a book of matches and he strikes a match and lights um, the dried grass around him so that there's this burnt over area immediately surrounding the two hunters. And then as the fire is coming over, as they're waiting for the fire, approaching them, um, they cover their mouths and they, with their handkerchiefs and they huddle down and they wait for the fire to pass. Um, and the fire came near and it swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched because fire will not pass where fire has passed. And the judgment of God is like that brush fire. We can't escape it. But if we stand in the burnt over place where God has already judged, then we will not be hurt. And the death of Christ is that burnt over place. He became the ultimate burnt offering. So how do you know that God is good? In Jesus, God has given you a king who offered up his life for you as a sacrifice for sins so that he might dwell with you forever. And this was what the Ark of the Covenant pointed to. And finally, in this last stanza, Verses 14 through 18, we're told that the Lord wants to dwell with his people and to accomplish final justice. Out of his own desire, he wants to dwell with his people forever and to do two things, to satisfy the poor and to save those who seek salvation. It says that in Zion, the anointed one will reign with power. We said that he'll have a horn, which is an agricultural metaphor for strength. And he will reign with light, that there's a lamp prepared, that he will reign in a way that is a light into the darkness of the world. And finally, that he will accomplish final justice by destroying his and our enemies. Verse 18, clothing enemies in shame and reigning as the king. And our translation of the last verse says that on him his crown will shine. And perhaps a better translation of shine is is bud or blossom, that his crown will bloom. And so this psalm is calling you to look at Jesus, the one who in his crucifixion wore a crown of thorns for you, the one who was the ultimate sacrifice for sin, so that in his resurrection, that same crown might flower out in love to accomplish justice for the poor and salvation for those who seek it. That this is what he is doing in and through his church. 
Friends, this is your king. So how can you know that God is good? How can you know that God is good? Um, when, when my children are little, I've got three kids, Leo's now seven, but when they were really little and they were scared, they were sad and they were scared and, and they were undone as, as little children get, as we all do, um, but as they were undone, what did I do with them? Um, and a lot of you do this as parents, but would get down on my knees, get close to them, hold their, hand, their head in my hands, bring their face to mine and make eye contact and tell them, I love you. I love you. And friends, Psalm 132 is God taking you by the face and pointing you to Jesus, David's greater son, and saying, Jesus died for you and he was raised for you. This is how you know that I am good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you take our questions seriously and that you provide answers um, that they don't necessarily make sense to us, but that they, they raise us to see you, the one who, um, who is good for us, Lord Jesus, that you took the suffering of this world into yourself, suffering sin, that um, in your resurrection, you might swallow up death forever. Lord, praise, pray that you'd help us to believe this, that you might be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.